Please open your Bibles with me tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 31. It's the last chapter of 1 Samuel. We'll be concluding 1 Samuel. And depending on what kind of time we have, uh, we may be able to do the first chapter in 2 Samuel. Now, just a reminder, when Samuel, the book of Samuel was first uh, written in the Hebrew language, it wasn't separated in 1 and 2 Samuel. It was just the writings, it was just the chronicles of Samuel. Uh, it was actually later in something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, translated into Greek, that they actually separated First and Second Samuel. And then, of course, it's just been that way throughout church history since. Every Bible, even the Hebrew Bibles now, break it here at First and Second Samuel. But depending on our time tonight, we may cruise into the first chapter of Second Samuel because it directly relates with what takes place here in chapter 31. But let's take a look. Let me remind you again of where we are in First Samuel, some of the setting for chapter 31. We, we know that the Philistines have gathered their armies for war against the children of Israel. We remember David at this stage is actually living among the Philistines. He was even, he and his men, uh, he had 600 mighty men with him. Uh, they were, they had been fleeing from Saul. Saul has been in pursuit of David most of uh, the latter half of, of 1 Samuel in his jealousy and his trying to protect his throne and, and being feeling threatened by David and his rise into prominence and knowing that God has rejected him and believing that David would take his throne, Saul has actually tried to pursue and kill David uh, for many years. Uh, some uh, 20 years have passed since Saul was rejected and to this date, and during much of that time, he was trying to protect his throne by pursuing David. David fled. David is hidden amongst the Philistines. And David was even willing, as we saw in just a couple chapters earlier, David was even willing to go out with the Philistines and fight against Israel, against his own people. This was David in a backslidden state. David in a place of hard-heartedness, just giving up on God's call, having given up on God's promises for his life. He's just making his own way. But now we see that the Philistines said, no, David, we don't trust you to go out to battle with us. Who knows what you'll do on the battlefield? So David rejected. He and his men return to the place where they were staying, the city of Ziglag, only to find that their families and all of their possessions have been ransacked, kidnapped and taken hostage. And as we saw in chapter before, David had to pursue them. David now returns his heart to the Lord. David is coming to the end of his own way. He's turning back to God. God leads him. He recaptures all that was taken from him from the uh, from from Ziglag. And so he is now kind of recovered his goods. But this Philistine battle is still getting ready to to, to, to wage. And Saul, in his fear, we saw this in earlier chapters too, just kind of bringing everything here to conclusion. Saul, out of his fear, of course, he, he has no relationship with the Lord. He's not getting any kind of divine insight from God. So he actually goes out and consults a medium, a spiritist, and Samuel appears. God allows this very uh, unusual kind of message to get through to Saul. Samuel arri- uh, comes up in the spirit and tells Saul, Saul, uh, 
Your day is over. Tomorrow in battle, you and your sons are going to die and perish. The next day, you're going to be done. Well, chapter 31 is that next day. So all of this is kind of happening consecutively. David is recovering. He's rejected. He doesn't get to go to the battle. So he goes and recovers his family and goods. Samuel, in fear of the battle, has gotten this word that you're going to die in battle. And now the battle is getting ready to commence. Pick it up with me in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. Now we don't know if Saul actually witnessed the slaying of his sons, But in this fierce battle, Saul, the camp of Israel was actually at Mount Gilboa. So they go out into battle and they are pushed back all the way to their, you know, their camp. I mean, they're they're now fleeing and the Philistines are pursuing them all the way into the stronghold. And so in this process, we see the slaying of Saul's sons. And this is a sad day, really, not only for Saul, but for the nation of Israel. Uh, And certainly our hearts, as we read this, uh, we're reminded of Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan was a was a good son. Jonathan was a man of faith. We, We almost wonder, why did Jonathan have to come under this judgment. We understand Saul, his hard-heartedness, his murderous pursuit of David, his rejecting of God, and, and God has to remove Saul from the throne to make way for David, the man after God's own heart. And we can even maybe understand why God would allow Abinadab and uh, Malkishua to be slaughtered in battle. Again, these might have been uh, sons of Saul that would have uh, desired the throne and God has to clear the way because ultimately he's bringing David to the throne of Israel. We don't know much about these other sons of Benadab, Malkishua. We don't know if they were if they were uh, loyal to Saul uh, in a, an aspiring for the throne sort of way. But ser- clearly they are caught up in God's judgment against Saul. His sons are also uh, They also fall in battle. But we do have to question why Jonathan? Why wasn't Jonathan spared? We remember Jonathan was a man of faith. You may remember, I'll just remind you quickly, back in 1 Samuel chapter 14, this is our first kind of introduction to Jonathan. It says that uh, when the Philistines were camped nearby, they'd been battling back and forth with the Philistines at that time as well. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for God for nothing. Excuse me. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. You remember the story, just Jonathan and his armor bearer. They go and they spy out this garrison of Philistines and they kind of it's through this area, kind of a narrow rock pass. And they taunt the Philistines to come after them and they slay the Philistines and have a great victory. He's clearly outnumbered. He routes this garrison and it becomes the occasion for God to bring a great victory for Israel against the Philistines. All of this by the faith of Jonathan. 
He's outnumbered, but he says, who knows? Let's see. A venture, a step of faith. Let's see what God will do. And this is Jonathan's heart, the kind of man and the kind of faith that he had. We know that he was a loyal friend to David. And we see in his relationship with David that they make covenant to one another. We see that Jonathan gives David his robe and his armor as, as if to say, David, I know that God has called you to be the king. I'm, the, I'm Saul's son. I have uh, you know, the, the heir to the throne, but I know that God is calling you. And he humbles himself under the Lord's plan and he, and he, he leagues himself up with David. He helps David escape even when Saul is pursuing him. We see him now dying on the battlefield. But it's important to note that Jonathan is not there under judgment as much as Jonathan is there as a defender of Israel. Jonathan's loyalty is to defend God's people. Yes, he fights alongside Saul, but Saul was the king of God's people. He was still the reigning king of the nation. We've already seen where Jonathan's loyalties are. They're with the Lord. And they're with David, the Lord's plan for the next king. But until God executed that plan and brought that to pass, Jonathan remains loyal to his work in defending his nation. He dies in battle fighting for his country, fighting for the Lord's people. Jonathan, in this occasion, suffers a noble death. Saul would suffer something of a death of judgment. Jonathan would go on to glory. Saul would go on to judgment. And we have to be reminded as we look at a passage like this that sometimes the Lord allows His servants to die in battle. Sometimes the Lord allows even His servants to suffer persecution, to endure hardship in this life. We're we're mindful of the apostles and those that were martyred for their faith. I'm thinking of even the Christians today that are being martyred for their faith. You know, we live in this country where things are relatively peaceful for Christians. We have some social pressure. We have some kind of, you know, political uh, pressure upon us as Christians. But none of us are under the threat of life. But that is going on in other places in the world. Christians are being murdered for their faith. And... You know, we, we, we imagine that somehow God's children, all, it's all going to be good. We're always going to have, you know, the best and the longest life and, and the best of jobs and the most prosperous of, of blessings will come to us because, after all, we're God's people. But that's more of an American uh, Christian idea than it is a biblical idea. Now, God does bless and God will prosper. God will provide. God does work in our lives. But there are also clear evidences here that God will allow his sheep to be slaughtered. He will allow his servants to be martyred as they fight for him, as they stand for him, as they live for him. So, Jonathan, we have to recognize that he would go on to be with the Lord, he would die something of a noble death in battle defending God's people. And just as there are today, there are many that are dying for the gospel. We are not. We are not asked to give our lives. Not yet. We live really just asked to give to give our hearts, to give our to give our our living for the Lord. Some are asked to give their very life for the Lord. And the Lord, we have to trust that in his sovereign plan, God 
God is allowing these things to happen. God has a bigger picture than us. God is looking at, it, at the eternal picture. And even in Jonathan and the, and the brothers being removed, God is looking at the bigger plan that He has for His nation, for David, for the kingdom. And so we see this at the very beginning, the sadness of Jonathan amongst the, the brothers being slain. Let's look on in verse 3 and we see what becomes of Saul. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword, <coughs> excuse me, Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Saul was mortally wounded in battle by the archers. And as he retreats, he asks his armor bearer to finish him, stab me through. I don't want the Philistines to come upon me without, while I'm still alive. I'm dying anyway. They'll abuse me. Go ahead and kill me. The armor bearer refuses, so Saul falls on his own sword. A tragic end to really something of a tragic life. Saul had begun so well. Saul had begun with such promise. There was a calling on his life. He was anointed by Samuel. He was the first king of God's nation, Israel. But he rejected the Lord. He refused to obey the Lord. He started well, but he did not finish well. Somewhere in this process of God raising him up, his heart, his own heart became proud and he began to look to the, to the accolades of men rather than being obedient to the God who raised him up among the men. Instead, he began to grasp at these things for himself, for his own ambition. We see that he would be rejected by God because he refused to obey the Lord. He rejected the Lord and his call and plan, wanting to fashion his own way in the kingdom. So God rejects him. He becomes consumed with jealousy. He hunts and, and desires to murder David. We see him in a low point where he murders the priests and their families because they think uh, he thinks that they're loyal to David instead of him. And we see from the time that he was rejected to this day, some 15 to 20 years of Saul's heart continuing to harden. How many opportunities did he have to repent? How many opportunities did he have to soften his heart? Even those moments when David spared his life, he could have truly, sincerely repented, cried out to God, and reestablished a humble relationship with the Lord. Would that have changed God's plan for David coming to the kingdom? Probably not. God had already made his decision. God had already called and anointed David. But I believe it would have greatly changed Saul's end and Saul's fate. Sometimes there are consequences to decisions that are made, to disobedience, to rejecting God. But it's never too late to get your heart right with God. It's never too late to turn back to the Lord. And from that place, 
even though you may be in the midst of consequence, from that place, God can begin to rebuild and still bring blessing, future, and hope into your life. Saul, it would have been complete, the story would have read completely different had Saul repented and gotten his heart right with God, but he never did. He continued to harden. And all of those years really is a picture of God's mercy upon Saul. God could have removed Saul instantly. But he let many years go by and he allowed Saul opportunity to turn and to soften. But he continued to harden. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God desires that none would perish. But when a heart is continued and set against God and stiffened and refuses, there does come a day when the opportunity to turn to the Lord has passed. I believe even in this moment, even in Saul's dying moments, he could have turned to the Lord. Instead, he just wants to escape the death at the hand of the Philistines. There's no mention of prayer. He had found out from Samuel the day before that your life would be ending. God had already told him. He'd he'd had these 24 hours to get his heart ready. There's no evidence that he did any of that. You come to that place, you harden, you harden, and then it's not that God will not receive your heart, but your heart is so hard that it will not turn. And you become set in that course. And this is Saul, even at the end, not in any way that we can see turning to the Lord. Still wanting to control his own destiny, he takes his own life without any thought of repentance or crying out to God. This is a hard passage to read. It's a sad and tragic story of a man who had such promise. But I'm thankful that the Bible is honest. I'm thankful that the Scriptures do not look to to soften this in any way. This is the cruel reality of a heart that rejects God for a lifetime and pursues his own interests, disinterested in God, unwilling to turn, repent, or change, but just continues his own way. And it stands something as a warning for all. The Bible says, Paul said, you know, these things are written for our teaching and instruction. These lessons are for us to learn that, hey, there's a there is a there is a place of hardening to where, you know, the end comes and you've hardened so long that even then you're not willing to turn. God is merciful. God is patient. God extends the time. And yet Saul, his heart was hard. Let's read on verse seven. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So this defeat becomes something of a national disaster. The defeat affects the whole nation, even even those that were living on the other side of the Jordan. Remember, part of the tribes of Israel had settled on the other side of the Jordan. Even they fled their cities, knowing that their king and their Their army had been destroyed. They knew that they were open game for the Philistines. They fled and the Philistines moved in and inhabited 
their cities. The Lord allowing His people to suffer great defeat. And yet, still, His sovereign hand is working even in this nation while they are going through this great defeat. God is setting the stage to replace a king. God is setting the stage for a better king. God is setting the stage, creating an opportunity for a man after his own heart to come to the throne. And even though this seems like a great tragedy, and it is, God is going to be able to turn even this into good as he uses it to prepare the way for King David to take the throne. He's not only working in the nation, not only preparing the way for a king, but he's also, as we'll see in the next chapter, he's working in the heart of David as well. This, this, this defeat of the nation of Israel is going to awaken David's heart and you know, something of his passion for God's people is going to be rekindled in his heart. He's been living with the Philistines. He was ready to go out and help the Philistines fight Saul and the armies. He, was, he had a hardened heart. He had numbed himself to the call of God. He'd completely shut out his, his compassion for, his, for God's people. But this, this event, as we'll see in the next chapter, is going to be kind of the awakening for David. His own family that he has to go and kind of you know, re- recover, that becomes the occasion where he begins to pray and he's turning his heart back to the Lord. This event is going to really awaken his heart back to God's people. And this is sometimes why I believe the Lord does allow traumatic events in our lives. It, it may be that God you know, has to fashion certain disasters. This is a, a national disaster, I, I, you know, but sometimes God allows certain difficult things to come because he's trying to do something in the hearts. You know the story of 9-11. All the churches on the following Sundays after 9-11 were packed to the brim. It was a spiritual, something of the, of the nation's spirit was touched. We were moved as a people. I can remember the weeks following that tragedy, that event, how you know, at, at, I went to a, you know, a sporting event and when they sung the national anthem, the people stood and just wept after 9-11, just that sense of our nation being so vulnerable in that moment. And God allowed that. And I'm not saying that God orchestrated that evil. But God will allow these kinds of events as spiritual wake-ups for the heart of His people. This, this nation is realizing we need, a, we need a godly king to help us defend. We need to get our hearts back to the Lord. This is a man David's going to see. God's people are on the run. I'm supposed to be helping. I'm supposed to be leading. And it's going to become a spiritual wake-up call in David's life as well. You don't know what the Lord is up to. It may be that God is working in a bigger picture even in your life. It may be the very thing that you wish was not happening may be the thing that God wants to use to further something of His call and purpose in your life. The testimonies of this are throughout the Scripture. We, we, see, we see even the cross of Jesus Christ. What seemed to be the greatest defeat for all of Jesus' disciples turned out to be God bringing the greatest victory in the resurrection. And God is often working, I believe, in our lives. 
I know in my own life there have been times when I've come through trial and difficulty, crossroads of, you know, and, and the Lord uses it to resort priorities, to, to kind of awaken me to what's really important. What does it matter, these things that I've been thinking about, preoccupied with? David must have thought, what does it matter that I'm you know, trying to live some comfortable existence for me and my family and my men outside of God's call and purpose for my life? What does it matter? God showed him I could take it all away in a moment as he, had to, as he came home and found his wives, his family, all lost. And it becomes a wake-up in his heart. And I think sometimes we all need that. The Lord has to rattle us a little to remind us what's important. What has God called you to do, to be, as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as a child, as a father, a parent, as an employee? What is God really looking to do through your life in this, this generation? This is your generation. This is our moment. And so I, I can't help but think that, Lord, if there are things that, that are necessary to, to wake us as a nation, as individuals, as families, Lord, use even difficult circumstance to further your will, your purpose, your kingdom. Look at verse 8. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Well, we can see that the very thing that Saul feared, that they would abuse him, boy, they did. They came upon him. He was already dead. They were unable to finish him. They were unable to torture him. But they were able to take him and his sons and cut their heads off, strip their armor, and use them as kind of a statement for their pagan gods within their temple worship. And believing that their idols were stronger. When when they had this kind of a victory, they believed that their gods had defeated Israel's god. Of course, their Deceived, but this becomes kind of a moment for even the enemy to kind of exalt himself over the Lord. I, I wonder, there is a passage of Scripture that said, had the, had the spiritual forces of darkness known what God had planned in the cross and the resurrection, they would not have been so anxious to put Him on that cross had they known the victory that God was was bringing. See, they thought they'd put him in the grave. Satan thought he was winning the battle when he had when he inspired uh, against Christ to be crucified. It says that Satan entered Judas. That whole conspiracy of Judas was all manipulated by Satan to thinking he would win by putting Christ in the grave. But of course, even when the when the when the false when the when the demonic forces think they're winning, they're not winning. God is always winning. God is always bringing victory. Nothing can hold back the the, the blessing and the promise of God. But in wanting to disgrace Saul and his sons, they actually disgrace their God as well. Verse eleven. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done. To Saul, 
all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. You may remember in our study here through First Samuel, when Saul was just starting as king of Israel, his early, the early years of his reign, there was a threat against the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Back in First Samuel chapter 11, they were surrounded. They were given notice that they were going to come in and pillage and destroy their city unless they surrendered. And Saul, the, just the, the kind of the newly anointed king of Israel, when he heard it, it says in chapter 11 that the Spirit of God came upon him. And he rose up and he took his men with him and he delivered the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. He rescued this city from certain demise, certain destruction, and the threat of the enemies that had surrounded them. Now, many years later, Saul and his family are being abused. And this was a, this was a very symbolic and, and spiritual gesture in the heart of that culture. To have, to have these bodies on display like this was the ultimate of shame and, and disgrace. And so in, when, when the men of Jabesh-Gilead, those who Saul had once rescued, when they hear what's been done to Saul and his sons, even though Saul had been a bad king by now for many, many years, he had not protected Israel as he should. He was too busy chasing David. And yet, you know, his, his reign had definitely deteriorated, but there was still something in the heart of the men of Jabesh-Gilead that remembered what Saul had done for them, how the Lord had used Saul. It says that the Spirit of God came upon Saul. They knew it was the Lord, but they knew that he had used, they, the Lord had used Saul. And this death, this abuse, rises up the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead. And they go and they rescue the bodies from this shame. They bring them back. They burn the bodies. They bury the bones. And in, in, a, in so doing, they put... They, they stop this shameful abuse of Saul and his sons. And again, even in a tragic death, we see God is able to bring some sense of inspiration into the heart of these men of Jabesh Gilead. This valor they may never, didn't even know they had, it rose up in them on occasion. And in, in this moment, they rose and did what was right. You know, I've had opportunity over the years to do funeral, many funeral memorial services. And from time to time, I'm asked to do memorial services for individuals who have passed away that were clearly not believers. They're, they're connected through some member of the family that may attend our church. And so as a service to the family, I, they invite and want me to do the, the services They're the deceased one wasn't even someone necessarily that we knew or a member of our church. They've passed away. They didn't know the Lord. There's no evidence that they had any relationship with the Lord. It's really a tragic end of a life. And I'm called to do the memorial service. It, it still becomes an occasion for family to remember and celebrate the good things that that life represented, whether they've gone on to be with the Lord or not. 
but it also becomes an occasion, and this is why I'm typically invited if it's someone from our church, it becomes an occasion to share the gospel. And I have seen in a, in a, in a tragic memorial service where the deceased did not know the Lord, I've seen people come to know the Lord. And this, this kind of reminded me of that, this Jabesh Gilead. These guys, this is a terrible, tragic end of Saul's life. But it inspires the men of Jabesh Gilead to rise up. And in a, in a way, it's in honor to the Lord. Because it was the Lord who used Saul to deliver them. And it seems that the Lord now gives them the, the courage to do what is right for Saul and for the nation and for the Lord. Even in tragic circumstances, God can use that occasion to open hearts for the gospel. You, you have loved ones that go through difficult, difficult seasons and even some deaths in the family. And here you are. All of a sudden, you're the person that has to make arrangements. You're the person that is asked to come and help the family through it. That is your moment to come and bring light even in a time of great darkness. Now, we can't comfort, you know, people that all go, everyone goes to heaven, you know, and I don't preach that when I do those services. We don't preach everybody into heaven. That, what, that person's spiritual state is between them and God, and there's nothing once they're dead that anyone can do. They're going to stand before God. But for the living, but for the living, there's much to say. For those that are still have opportunity, there's much to say. And it becomes an occasion to talk about mortality. It becomes an occasion to talk about what's really important because all of us are going to go the way of Saul and his sons. Maybe not this dramatic. I hope not. But all of us will ultimately end in death. So all are headed to this end and it behooves us to be ready and it behooves us to help share and minister to others that they too might be made ready. Well, it's 8.10. It's just right on that bubble, you know. If it was 8.15, we could just close. But it's like, I don't think I've got enough time to do the next chapter. All right, how many want to go on to the next chapter? How many want to just close it down? All right, we're going on, you guys. I can do. I'm. I'm. I can. I can do this chapter in in easily an hour and a half. So I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter one. <clears throat> we see what happens to Saul. Now the news comes to David. Chapter one, verse one. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And David had slayed, excuse me, stayed two days in Ziglag. You remember, he's back there just recovering his family. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. 
So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? You feel the urgency. Verse 6, And the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he, took, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. And so I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So this is how David hears the news. This Amalekite has come across the battle. He's come across Saul and he comes and he reports to David. And as I said earlier, I I believe this this is the moment when when David's heart is awakening again spiritually. Now, he's already returned to the Lord. He's already seeking the Lord. He's already restored and established his rapport, his relationship, his prayer life with God. We saw that in earlier chapters. But now God, now the news, and you you can just hear that kind of the urgency in David. The the children of Israel are, are defeated. God's people are on the run. The armies have been slaughtered. And even Saul and your good friend Jonathan have been slain in the battle. And this news comes to David and it's almost as if he can't believe that it's happened. And, you know, all those years he was running from Saul, you might think that he would be like, wow, finally Saul is dead, you know, like the wicked witch is dead, right? But no, his heart is, it's, it's awakening to his calling. God's people are on the run. The armies of God have been defeated. Do you remember a young David when he came uh, into the camp of, of the, the armies of the Lord being taunted by Goliath the Philistine? Do you remember that young David? Who is this Philistine that would challenge the armies of God? But now this is a David that has been on the run and has, has, has fallen away from that heart, that passion to defend God, his honor, his people. But now something is coming back. It's like the, the armies of God have been defeated. Saul has been slain. My, my friend, my brother Jonathan, not his biological brother, but his sole brother, Jonathan. This Amalekite. Now, this Amalekite tells the story that he's the one who actually finished Saul. We can't we can't know if this Amalekite, it could be that he is just embellishing this story to kind of, uh, you know, uh, impress David. It may be that Saul was already dead and this guy just got there, took his took the crown and the wristband and just ran off to tell David because we saw earlier that Saul fell on his sword and his armor bearer saw that he was dead. And so the Amalekite may just be weaving a story here to gain grace in front of David. Or it may be that Saul was still not yet completely finished. And his armor bearer is dead and now he's supposed to be dead. And maybe this Amalekite comes and actually does the final act of finishing Saul off. There is some irony there. 
this Amalekite would be the one that if if in fact he did put Saul to death, this is what caused Saul's rejection by the Lord when he would not finish the king of the Amalekites. Remember, God said, you need to wipe out the Amalekites. I'm judging them. But Saul spared the king and much of the possessions because he wanted the favor and the goods of the people. And here now, this is the Amalekite that has come and actually ends his life. Whether he did or not, let's read on verse 11. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. Now David is moved. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David is sincerely grieved. He's sincerely grieved for Saul the one who pursued him. There is still a grieving for the tragedy of his life. There is still a grieving for this leader of God's people, this man that he went out and fought for and commanded armies for. And now he's dead and David's heart is truly grieved. He's grieving not only for Saul, but for the people of the Lord. Again, his heart is being awakened to be king. God is readying him to be sensitive to the needs of, of God's people. I do believe that God desires to use our lives. And in order to be useful to the Lord, there has to be a connection with the Lord's heart. Our heart has to take on something of God's heart and passion. If our heart is preoccupied with selfish endeavors and and selfish, you know, gratif- gratification, it's hard for God's concerns to find Room. If our heart is preoccupied with fear and trouble and anxiety, as much of David's life up till now has been running from Saul and to the point where he just he forget forgot about his call from God. He forgot about God's people. He was just interested in just kind of saving himself, his own skin. You know, we can become so distracted with life, with the cares of life, that we forget the heart that God wants, something of his heart that he wants to burden your heart with that compassion, that love, that sincere desire for the lost, for the brothers and sisters in Christ, for those that are suffering, Christians abroad. And and we scarcely pray. We're scarcely moved. We're too preoccupied. David is is coming back and and he's something of God's heart for his people. God's heart is broken before his for his nation. His people are falling under defeat. And God is letting David feel that grief. God is allowing David to share that burden. And this circumstance begins to awaken it in David's heart. After all, he is a man after God's own heart. 
This describes a man whose heart is aligned with God's for this for some season. Now he's been unaligned out of alignment, but God is now bringing him back into alignment with his calling, his purpose, his God's passion beginning to beat in his heart. I pray that all of us would allow the Lord to align us. God, what is it that is of burden to you tonight? In this generation, in this time in which we live, am am I prioritized properly? Are your priorities mine? Or am I just too busy with my own trying to get you to align you, your priorities with mine? Right? We want to recruit God to our priorities. We need to be surrendering to his priorities. You know, we have this opportunity this this um, Friday night, couple weeks to invite people out to hear this testimony. It's going to be a night that the gospel is going to be preached. Souls are going to have opportunity to be touched for eternity. I hope you're not too busy. I hope you're not too busy to bring... And I'm not trying to guilt you into being there. It may be that you are busy and you can't make it, but think about it. Think about it. did a wedding uh, this past weekend. Uh family that you know, Kendall and uh, Perla got married and uh, it was just a beautiful service. But in in the process of kind of getting ready to do the wedding, I I got to spend some time with the couple and hear their testimony. And it's it's such a powerful testimony. I don't know how yet, but I want everybody to hear that testimony. I haven't figured out how to get that out, but that that's I'm praying about that, whether we do some kind of a uh, putting it on some kind of a film, a video where they can share it or whether we give them a night to share. I'm not sure, but it was just so powerful, so moving to me. And Perla, the, the fiance, the wife, uh, she, she just gave she gave the story. She was a single mom and she gave the story of how she, you know, made her way down to the Harvest Crusade in Orange County. And she said, we got there late And she said, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to be there. And I wasn't sure, but Kendall said maybe I should go there. They were just friends at that time. And he suggested maybe she should go. So she goes and she brings her three young ones with her. And she said the place was packed. We couldn't find parking. I almost turned around and went home. But I said, oh, kids, we're here. Let's try. And they stuck us up way up in this corner somewhere. The place was full. And we couldn't even see the stage. We couldn't even see Greg Glory. We saw this little video off in in this back of the stadium. And she said, and then when I heard the gospel, she said, God began to move in my heart. I began to weep. And then my kids began to weep. We all went forward to receive Christ in that moment. And this it was so profound to me. You know, we have the Harvest Crusades every year, right? We're almost kind of, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, the Harvest. Oh, yeah, they do that every year, right? But... Listen, people are getting saved. You know, and it just, God used that, that, that testimony to kind of just remind me, you know, whatever we've got to do to get the gospel out and whatever we've got to do to get people to hear it, that's, that, there's power. And this was years back now. The, her life, the, the, you know, her life has been dr- dramatically changed. And this is what's going on with David. This is a crisis in his life, in the nation, but God is using it to awaken his heart. And I, I just pray that God would awaken our hearts, that we would too be passionate about the things of the Lord. All right, I'm going to stop there.
we won't finish, but we will pick up the rest um, next week. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the life of David that you've recorded for us and passed down from generation to generation. Lord, he was just a man. Just a man whom you called and worked and moved in his life. He made many mistakes, like all of us. He had great moments. He had horrible moments. But it's a life that that you were able to continue to work with and to work through. And Lord, I pray that all of our hearts here tonight would be encouraged. We have the example of Saul, a man who who quit, a man who started well but became distracted and rejected your purpose, rejected relationship with you, pursued his own interests. And we see the end of his life. And we see David now rising up to the king kingdom and a man whose heart is being awakened. He's been away from you. His heart has grown dull to some degree. But Lord, you're you're stirring it. You're awakening him. And I pray that our hearts would be awakened, Lord, tonight. There may be some here tonight that maybe they're going through a tragedy. But I pray that that tragedy would not would not overwhelm them, but rather, Lord, that they would turn deeper to you and that your sovereign hand would encourage them to know that even in tragedy, you are working and wanting to do good things. Lord, let these passages speak to us. As our heads are bowed here tonight and we want to finish in a song of worship, I want to give opportunity if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord. And if you're here tonight and your your heart's been hard towards the Lord, you're here tonight and you've fallen away from the Lord, you've lost all sensitivity to God, you're just dried up spiritually, God is speaking to you. And it may be that you need to come and receive forgiveness by receiving Jesus into your life for the first time. Confessing your sin and allowing Him to forgive you. Acknowledging His death on the cross and the resurrection. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to come back to the Lord because the Lord is trying to awaken something afresh and anew and you know that you need it. I want to pray for you. So just before we close, if you're here tonight, you want to receive Jesus or you need to rededicate your life to Jesus, would you just raise your hand wherever you're seated and I'll pray for you. Anybody here tonight? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these passages. Father, I pray that you will work in the heart of your church and awaken us to those things that are of eternal value in the way that we live, in the hope, in the joy that we have, and Lord, in the life and the witness that we share. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.